0: Hello, and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Owatari-Dorkin, and with me, as always, is a man who's really glad they didn't shoot him when he was wandering around in his bear suit.
1: <laughs> I am the Adam Glass, and sometimes you just gotta hang from the chandeliers in a bear suit. It's uh, Chase around some uh, some lambs for some reason. <laughs> here's, the, here's the thing.
0: There are moments where there is a real bear, uh, but then right. there's there's... Sometimes there's just a dude in a not-very-good bear suit hanging from a chandelier, and then sometimes yeah. the best one is when he goes full Bigfoot in the middle of that courtyard, and they're like, don't shoot him. He's really gentle. And it's like, my man, that's a dude. Like, I can see his face. That is a man yeah, he's in really a gentle. bear suit. He's a really gentle dude. It's just he's that really gentle he goes, it's full Bigfoot, though, because he stands up, he looks at the camera. The film is kind of blurry. It's dark, and he yeah. just like looks at the camera, and he's like, it's like for a minute there you're kind of waiting for the bear to wave it's like what is happening in a movie full of just absolute (laughs) absurdity that was the moment that got me
1: i love that that's what pushed you over Before we get into this movie this week, uh, which is going to be fun to talk about, absolutely. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. Uh, yeah. I do want to talk about our Patreon first. Patreon.com slash Lost in Criterion. Over there for a dollar a month, you get access to a bonus episode. It's a non-criterion film. You get to vote on what we're going to watch. You uh, get access to all the back catalog of bonus episodes. There's uh, not quite, but nearly 50 back there now. Uh, we've watched some really great movies. Uh, Dog Day Afternoon, uh, Louis Malle's God's Country, uh Ernest goes to camp just uh just some of the best movies ever made that for some reason aren't in the Criterion right. collection um <laughs> and some stuff that actually ended, right. yeah. ended up in the Criterion collection like uh we we did watch Fail Safe over there uh pretty early uh and then it was added to the
0: Criterion collection well we joke about that happening to all the films we've ever watched on right, there right. but like that feels like a fluke really like it's not going to happen i'm 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 right now trying to convince myself that it won't happen to every movie <laughs> we've watched. Yeah. But it but, I mean the fact that Dog Day Afternoon is not in there is is really just like Yeah, Dog Day a, a deeply confusing thing to me. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's it's weird. There's I mean, maybe it's just licensing stuff, but uh I'm sure it is, but but some of the Sydney Lumet stuff like we watch Network. For a bonus yeah, episode not, as well. Right, right. And that's yeah. not in the Criterion collection. But 12 yeah, Angry and that Men. Feel, it
0: feels like it should be, right? That really 12 does. Angry Men
1: is in the Criterion collection, so I don't know. You know,
0: he's a good director. Yeah.
1: So, anyway.
0: Uh, it, yeah, it's yeah. all licensing for sure, but. Almost you
1: know. certainly. Uh, you know, those other movies are widely available, so it's not like Criterion needs to do one, but.
0: Well, this Criterion... Okay, never mind. We're not going to go let's, not, this let's <laughs> not
1: Let's not get no, sidetracked no, on whether or not yeah, Criterion yeah. needs to exist. So, uh... <laughs> Or do
0: any of the things it does. But yeah. yeah.
1: Um, anyway, patreon.com slash Lost in Criterion, like I said, uh, I put together a list every month, usually themed, uh, usually after something we watched recently, but I also take suggestions from supporters. Uh, if a Patreon supporter makes a suggestion, usually they'll be invited onto the show. Uh, I realized going through the list recently that that's not something we did at first, uh, but it right. has no, become sort not, of yeah. standard policy now. Uh, it's fun. It's a good policy, though, it's, yeah, and it's, it's one we're going to gonna stick with. We like it. I, I absolutely do enjoy enjoy having uh, our supporters on to talk about a movie they really loved. It's It's good times. But that's the $1 mark. For $5, we do... Uh, something a little bit better for people who want to give us a little more money. We thank those people on air. So thank you so much to Stephen Goldmeyer, our good friend, who is our only $5 supporter right now. And uh, a little above that, the reason there's only one $5 supporter, at $10 and above, we do something pretty great. Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we watched recently. I get that printed up on a postcard and write a little personalized thank you note, mail that off. So you get a little piece of bespoke art. Uh, you get a little piece of bespoke Adam writing. And uh, and you get a piece of mail, and isn't that yeah? You know, everybody loves mail. Some sometimes of those things are thing. much better than others,
0: but <laughs> so, sometimes you get a thing that Pat accidentally dumped like thirty hours of work into, uh, uh, and begins to regret it. You know, listen,
1: the ones you have accidentally dumped thirty hours of work into are pretty amazing, though. You do you do some really fine work. Uh, and then sometimes f- I slap something out in 15 minutes. <laughs> you also do some really fine work on the ones you slap out in 15 minutes, too. I got to be honest. Uh, some of your most amazing stuff has come together pretty quickly, too. But uh, but whenever you end up spending way too much time on it, it is yeah, it usually is- a, f- a very good idea and it, it works out very well.
0: I, I really, if you if you ever wonder which one, you should just, we do have a place. We have the Redbubble, and I really, I encourage you to yes. go over there if you're on the fence about committing to it, because then you don't have to give Redbubble your money <laughs> in order to buy some yes. of those things that took me 35 hours to make for some reason. Right,
1: right, right. Uh, well, you, can, uh, you can go to redbubble.com and search for Lost in Criterion. You can see a lot of the past postcards. I put them up on a little bit of a delay so that our supporters get to see them first, uh, and there is one that was taken down because uh, Toho is a litigious company, <laughs> yeah, and sent a takedown notice to Redbubble, and Redbubble and was I, like, "Hey, we're not right. gonna, we're not gonna defend that." And uh, I mean, that's their prerogative, but they were wrong right. because it was yeah, They were wrong,
0: but um, I will. I still, at some point, if I ever get the time and am, am dedicated to the idea of making a special edition that mm-hmm. that dodges around the copyright problems with it. <laughs> uh, like, in a really stupidly passive-aggressive way. Uh, yes. But, like, it's just going to take some time, so it'll show up someday. Uh,
1: so thank you so much to Chris Otto, Jason Westhaver, Michael McGrath, Patrick Yacko, and Adam Speakerman, our $10 and above supporters. Uh, we really appreciate
0: that. Yeah, we do. We really
1: appreciate you guys just listening.
0: No. Thanks. Yeah, that's, that's definitely true. Ju- I mean, like, absolutely. So, Pat, this week we are
1: talking – once again, about a Louis Bunel film. Uh, I, among the, well, earliest I mean, I, it was Bunel a dead films. giveaway
0: when we talked about a man in a bear suit just staring at <laughs> right, the camera. Right,
1: right, right, right. Yeah, you've you've already realized that. Whatever it is, it's a Bunel film. Certainly, uh, this is our uh, our fourth Bunel film centered around a dinner party.
0: <laughs> I, I mean, the man has a uh, has a thing,
1: and Listen. he's
0: gonna do that thing.
1: He uses the dinner party differently in each of the movies.
0: I got to be honest. Hey, well, I mean, yeah. Like, I mean, that's what we call creativity, right? Like, same core concept. Rich assholes at a dinner party. Different weird rich asshole things happen to them. Yeah.
1: Well, with one, with one exception. Viridiana, it's rich asshole throwing a dinner party, kind of, um, by inviting a bunch of poor people into their house. Right. I mean, I have
0: forgotten. I mean, like. Viridiana was a weird one because like it was in some of the like the, the documentary stuff we watched for this week's yeah. episode and, and, and next you've week's episode, and I'm like, I know I've seen this movie, I couldn't tell you a thing about
1: it. The weird thing is you made a reference to Viridiana just a few weeks ago. Uh, Did I about See, the uh, the scene where the dog is tied to the underside
0: of the of the carriage? Uh, oh right, yeah. Well, oh right, yeah. Okay. See now, like if you key it in just right, <laughs> right. I, I could like because what I've learned and this is going to get unnecessarily meta for our for our own podcast is that like I don't remember the movies as whole entities right uh or even the people in them I mean, but it's just like snippets of things that have just sort of jumbled into my brain and occasionally spit things out
1: with Buñuel films particularly with with this and Viridiana moving forward uh and Viridiana is the movie he made right before this right um it's very easy because there's a lot of sort of surrealist elements that, and like once we get to Discreet Charm and Phantom of Liberty, they're essentially montage anyway because it's right. well, disconnected. Yeah, those scenes, ones are. Yeah. Even with the same characters. So, you know, it's, it's easy to sort of mix and match um, right. as you think I about mean, things from Burnell right. films that really connected with you. Um, the, but the thing l-
0: about it is is these ones though are are linear stories. And so right. well, I mean this one, you know, you could argue about the linearity of this story or not. But like <laughs> That's fair. my point is is that like those later ones are yeah, just vignettes. But like yeah. this this phase of Brunel is at least a story uh, in, in in as much as it has a beginning, middle and an end. Right, right, right.
1: Yeah. Anyway, this is the exterminating angel from 1962. As I said, he made Viridiana just before this. Next week, we will talk about Simon of the Desert, a film he made a few years after this, which is uh, essentially the final thing he made in Mexico. Um, this is this is sometimes credited as his final Mexican film, but he did make Simon of the Desert in Mexico just a few years later with right. the same with the same producer and with the same star, uh, Silvio yeah. Pinal is uh is the star of all three of these movies oh um,
0: and the, and the whole story around that is so interesting, so I hope we get into a little bit of that yeah but with, certainly with the the way she became a, the star of these two films <laughs>
1: yeah um <laughs> i gotta was it with her we'll talk about it next week but uh what was there or with the next episode but was uh was it in stuff you watched where they talk about Simon being an anthology film and them approaching Fellini about making it,
0: I don't remember. That must be the other thing. That, okay, the we'll, part, that the one that you watched. Because we'll like my my general thought of it is just that like I found the story of like oh like she's the star of these films because she wanted to be in work with Buñuel and so her husband who was the producer like offered to produce films for Buñuel right so that she yeah. could be the star. And the like the net result is that she's the star of the films and and they call it her best work. I mean, I don't know if that's the movie the documentary just sort of playing it yeah. up. I mean, it's good work. She does an excellent just, job in these films. Yeah, like, she's very good at it. But um, like when, uh, they also talk about is the most like filmmaking freedom he ever got while he was in Mexico because essentially yeah. it was like a blank check to like, yeah, make whatever you want to right. put my wife right. in these to movies. Put my wife in. Um and yeah. A yeah, successful yeah. actor before that, mind you. She right. was not right. like this is not one of she, those, like, uncomfortable situations where it's like this non-actor, like, like you know what I mean? Right, like, there's a whole right, thing right, that right, happens right, in right, American right. Hollywood sometimes.
1: Where people buy their way into a movie. This is this, right. is this is that, but not exactly that, because she is a talented person <laughs> who wanted to work with Bunel. So she's like, hey, husband, let Bunel make whatever movie he wants on the condition that I'm in it. Uh, right. We'll talk a little more about it next week, but uh, Simon of the Desert uh, was meant to be an anthology film. And they approached Fellini and Jacques Dacine, uh, to produce the two other parts of the film. And both Fellini and Dacine said, Oh yeah. And I'll have my wife star, which obviously Fellini's wife is, is, you know, Julietta. She's a phenomenal actress too. Uh, but, (laughs) but, uh, Sylvia obviously was on those, uh, those calls, those visits with her husband, uh, Gustavo uh, Alatriste, I believe, is how you uh, how you say his last name. Uh, anyway, um, and she's like, "Oh yeah, that's not gonna work."
0: <laughs> she's she <laughs> sorry. Says,
1: she says she says she frames it as because I'd already put in all the work of crafting these ideas, uh, but uh, but really, you know, she yeah. she was only doing this to be in a movie. You know, she's gonna be in the movie. You know. Um, Obviously, she had already been in the first section, but again, we'll talk about that when we talk about the next movie. Uh, with the exterminating angel, uh, like you said, it is sort of his first uh, whole creative control. Viridiana was interesting; it, it bought him, it bought him some respect in creative control uh, because um, you know it 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 did well at Con, right. um, and we talked about this with Viridiana, but I won't fault you for not remembering it. Uh, it was entered as Spain's submission from Con, or for Khan that year, uh, even though Spain—I mean, it was Franco with Spain. They were not on board with Viridiana. Right. Um, and then to get—I don't know that we mentioned this in the Viridiana episode, but I learned it uh, in some of the background material here. Uh, in order to get Viridiana, uh distributed, uh, there were— certainly places in the world that were not going to distribute a film from Francoist Spain. Uh, right. so they sort of had to repatriate the movie and Ma- make, make market it marketed as Mexican. Um, which is interesting because, uh, Bunel himself had become a Mexican citizen, uh, around that time. Um, is an interesting case. Uh, so often we have talked about directors, particularly fleeing Germany. And right. landing on their feet wherever they landed, right? They went to Hollywood. They made movies in Hollywood. It was great. Uh, Buñuel's got that early stuff in Spain, you know, and 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 even in in France in in the early '30s, just after he left Spain, uh, when he's in Paris with Dali and and the others making things like uh, Le Chien and Lou and uh that sort of the the high watermark of of surrealism of the of the pre-war period um but then he moved to America and he could not find work in America
0: Yeah, I was wondering about it's a, that's a really he, fascinating thing. Yeah. Like
1: there's a there's a documentary as part of the Criterion on the Exterminating Angel that is essentially it is one of buñuel's sons throughout the whole thing and then one of his other sons i believe he's only got the two two sons actually joins but it's him going through his father's life uh visiting location location cities that he lived in and talking about what happened when they lived here or when buñuel right. lived here for for things and he talks to film scholars and buñuel scholars and people who worked with him in each of these locations to sort of localize it and it's There's a lot of very interesting stuff in it, but one of the most interesting aspects is in the U.S. he just he could not get directing jobs. Uh, He was editing. He was dubbing for major studios into Spanish dubs for films. Uh, Before he moved to L.A., he lived in New York and at New York he worked for the Museum of Modern Art doing like a political film uh right. dubbing and then stuff. He got, too. And then
0: he got denounced as a Marxist. <laughs> and then Dolly Dali. By
1: Dali by put Dali. out Yeah, Dali put out his memoir and denounced him as an atheist and a communist. Uh and uh and political pressures in the US were as such that uh Bunel was forced to resign from MoMA. Uh and I've seen, you know, I saw the letter that uh the curator of MoMA wrote to Bunell about being sorry that he had to accept this resignation. Uh, that circumstances conspired to make it impossible for him to continue working there. And he's very apologetic, but also no one's going to bat for Bunel there. Right. Uh, yeah. So, Dolly. Well, right. You. I mean,
0: yeah. We're <laughs> We've talked about Dolly before. We've talked but about like, that before. <laughs> like, it's a weird situation because... What it makes you want, I, it, it's really. I didn't watch the other documentary that you watched, but I did watch the one about Minel's yeah. Brine, time in Mexico, and it and it does get into that, and it's really a kind of confusing um, thing because you you do start to wonder why he couldn't land on his feet like basically at all, like uh, well, and it's part of it is because a lot of times it seems like other directors got kind of brought over in that pre-war period. There was a sort of like siphoning off of, direct, of like, artistic talent off of Europe. Like, right. like Hollywood and them kind of, like, knew, like, oh, well, the, the winds are blowing such that these people aren't getting any work over in Europe anymore. We're going to grab them while we can kind of thing, right? Um, That's but one... Nobody seems that interested in him at right. all.
1: One thing where I feel like it's very interesting that we're watching this movie right after El Norte is that this is the one film director who really really exhibits the refugee experience right he is a political refugee he's a war refugee right uh in so many other european directors of his time and and the decade after uh were right but but he was well established in europe and moved to the u.s and just couldn't do he couldn't get hired to do what he wanted to do and what he was trained to do and what he was established as doing, right? Right. And it's, you know, it's it's like so many stories you hear of, of immigrants and refugees who, who get to the U.S. and they were, you know, doctors or teachers or whatever back right. in the country and they come from. They're doing something and now they're doing something for which... You know, really they're valets and taxi drivers and right. line cooks and you know. um, And I've met so many people in that position um, and worked with them. So it's, you know, it's interesting that he has that experience. And it's really not, he doesn't really land on his feet until he gets to Mexico and falls in with a crowd of Spanish war refugees, of Republican refugees, you know. They're obviously politically akin to him. They are they are communists as well and that's actually that's a really interesting little side anecdote to the moma stuff is that when he was hired they did vet him and they were like hey we heard you're a communist and you and like i'm a republican because that's what right. the, that's what the communists were called right. in in spain because they supported a the spanish republic and, and they were all like oh well if you're a republican you can't be a communist because right. we're in america and that's that's not where republicans are so so they hired him despite the fact that he was upfront front about about those political amazing. labels at least uh oh without God. expanding on what those labels meant uh yeah it's very good anyway he gets to mexico he falls back in with with all of these others who who were established he becomes he very much adopts mexico he almost became a u.s citizen uh, but he actually became a mexican citizen uh and really really adopted mexico even after you know he's he goes back to europe and he makes movies in europe and and none of his mexican films are really explicitly mexican right um but there's a lot of talk in the background material with this that you know mexican film at the time was very you know like with viridiana not with viridiana with this with exterminating angel uh and with viridiana i'm sure too uh like the Mexican aristocracy did not, the upper class, the bourgeois in Mexico did not feel attacked by the exterminating angel because that's not. These were obviously European aristocracy, right? Right, and that's like
0: there's a kind of a power there, right? That as long right. as he continues to talk about the <laughs> European aristocracy, he can like kind of do whatever he wants in that way, right? Because it's like ah, you know, right, right. These, these assholes, we don't like those guys either.
1: <laughs> right. Uh, there's a, yeah, you know, there. I feel like we we've danced around this before, but in so much of the other Bunell stuff we've seen, Buneell really comes off as the sort of guy who acts like an asshole and then calls it praxis. Right. Uh, which can be funny, at least. Um there is a great a great anecdote from the background material that uh while he was in LA, uh he and his screenwriter um I can't remember the man's name. Uh, but they were invited by Charlie Chaplin to, uh, to dinner, to Christmas dinner, in fact. And Charlie, Charlie invites him to dinner and says, uh, but you got to bring a gift. Uh, because they do a, like a white elephant exchange. You got to bring a gift, wrap it, we'll put it under the tree and, uh, and they'll figure it out. Uh, (laughs) and then everybody picks their own gifts blah 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 whatever you know the rules of white elephant yes actually you probably don't because a very like regional term for for what that is but but a a blind gift exchange anyway uh the uh he gets to he gets to Chaplin's house and and they've been like fuming fuming about the whole gift exchange uh eduardo ugarte was the other guy by the way the screenwriter uh they've been like cursing cursing Chaplin and, and all these people as bourgeois. And uh and uh Bunel tells the screenwriter, tells Ugat God, uh on my signal, when I pull out my handkerchief at dinner, we'll storm the tree and destroy all the gifts. What? So that's what they did. He a, he they destroy all the <sighs> gifts, they push the tree over. <laughs> uh Chaplin's wife says it was unforgivable. Bunel responds, on the contrary, it was subversive. <laughs> and then oh, Chaplin kicks them out. <laughs> and they Jeez. don't talk for a couple of weeks. Finally, Chaplin runs into him uh, a couple of weeks later and invites him over again. It's all like, oh, lovey-dovey. With, with, uh, like nothing had happened. Invites him over again. Right. Gets to the door. Chaplin opens the door. And there's another even larger Christmas tree <laughs> right inside the door. And Chaplin says, Hey, knock that tree down before we have dinner. And, oh my uh, God. and then they all laugh about it and, and life goes on. But uh, uh, Charlie Chaplin, from what I've heard is a pretty vindictive guy. So, so yeah. maybe it's, it's abnormal that, uh, that it worked
0: out in the end. Yeah. That but, it didn't turn into even more of a thing. Yeah. But
1: yeah. Uh, but yeah, like I said, the, uh, the last script is uh, it has some very interesting aspects to it. That's the name of the documentary. Um, it's got some very interesting aspects in it. Some very fascinating uh, background material and biographical material. I feel like the weirdest part to me was, uh, I mean, obviously my dad is not someone who there is scholarly work being done about. But right. if I were if I were doing if I were doing a show about my dad. Where I'm trying to talk about his young life, and I've invited right. <laughs> invited the head of the my dad museum to also <laughs> right. to also I mean, talk about t- my
0: dad, telling you all about your dad. Yeah, it's
1: uh, it'd yeah, be a there's little weird. There's something there.
0: I will say there's something weird there. Uh, yeah, yeah. Tell me there's more a, about my dad.
1: There's also a great moment where uh, uh, they're they're talking to uh, to Sylvia in Mexico City, and uh, there's a building if the studio named after Buñuel and a statue dedicated to him and, and one of the sons says, yeah, he would have hated that. And so he's like, yep, he absolutely would have, but we love it. So
0: yeah, this isn't for him anyway.
1: <laughs> right. He's dead. It's fine. Um, which, you know, is probably Bunell's stance too. The guy, the guy who Frank, who frequently said, thank God, I'm an atheist is probably pretty cool with whatever right. happens in his memory. Yeah, when he's whatever gone. you
0: go for after he's yeah. dead. Yeah. Yep.
1: Uh but yeah. Uh speaking of thank God I'm an atheist. This is uh a movie like Viridiana and like The Milky Way that uh is uh pretty uh pretty take that to Christian organized Christianity in particular, but religion in general. Yeah. Uh you know, obviously particularly that final scene, but even before that we get uh a Kabbalist for some reason who has the pieces of a chicken in her purse.
0: Um, yeah, I mean the best part about that is the best part about the chicken is the fact that the chicken is foreshadowed. It's yes. just a wild ass thing. Yes. It's like, oh yeah, like we just cut to her like purse like out like at the right. beginning of the film with fucking chicken bits in it. And it's like right. and you and you as an audience, like it's it's highlighted. So you as an audience are like, what do I this chicken shit in, like <laughs> chicken feet in her uh just a bunch of feathers and, and like, feet and I guess uh. it like it's Chekhov's chicken parts? I don't know, man. Like I don't <laughs> yeah. know. Yeah, it comes back. It's like I mean I it all makes sense. It's just like wow, like
1: Well, it makes sense as much as anything in this movie makes. Well, sense. what
0: I what I mean though is is that like part of the whole the whole the whole gun on the mantelpiece thing is that because the audience recognizes that as a as a as a sort of a, a sort of meta key for the movie like it, it adds an extra layer to it. Right. People don't typically register chicken feet as like important right, meta commentary right, right. on how the film will function.
1: Yeah, but of course, you know when you when you have your camera linger on it, it's going to be right, important. You still, it still
0: indicates something. Yeah. yeah, it's just like you don't know what that. You don't yeah. mean you don't know that it involves like, you don't know that it involves like, archaic like, uh, mystic uh, <laughs> right, rituals. Right. Whereas a gun, you have a fairly good idea what's gonna happen with that gun. Yeah. Um one more
1: thing I think I'm I'm pulling from the last script, but I can't remember if it was there particularly or if I read it somewhere else. Uh the American distributors of this film uh wrote to wrote to him, wrote to Bunel asking him what the movie was about. It's a uh, story that Bunel you know, uh, Bunel uh what it meant particularly. And Bunel is said to have spent the entire day writing this this big long thing uh and finally just getting rid of it and uh <laughs> writing back it doesn't mean anything, go to hell.
0: <laughs> yeah, I remember there's definitely I I don't think that's exactly what they have on the Wikipedia, but I, I there was like a, a thing on the Wikipedia about an interview where he's like, yeah. I don't know, you tell me or something right, to that effect. Right. <laughs> and it's there's like, also All right, it checks out <laughs>
1: In like Ebert makes reference to this, and every review I could find online makes reference to something that I did not see in our cut. Okay. Uh, um, but apparently, the I mean, we watched the Spanish language film version, right? Uh, yeah, and it's attributed to the Spanish language version. But uh, I guess there's a, a prologue or epilogue, um, and I watched the opening credits and the ending credits like multiple times to try and find this. Uh, but it is a, a message from Bunell that is attributed as a, an epigram sometimes, which would be at the start, or a prelude uh, is another word that's used to describe it. Um, but supposedly it's in the film, and I did not see it in the film. Uh, but a, his explanation is, the best explanation of this film is that, from the standpoint of pure reason, There is no explanation, and supposedly that was part of the cut. Uh, But I, I don't know why Criterion would have put that cut that out. But I did, like I said, I tried to watch it multiple times and never saw that information presented. I never
0: saw that. I mean, I I would wonder, sort of mentally, if like, are we are we dead certain? that that was part of the original Spanish cut or if that was a thing that he tacked on later. It does
1: seem like... We've seen movies before where, like, the director does a little introduction in a in a re release cut, and that kind of seems right. like. But also, I don't think Budel would ever do that. I, so I see. Don't know. Here's
0: where I disagree, though. I mean, I I I know what you're saying. I know what you, you what you mean, and <laughs> sort of the in terms of the kind of person he is. Yeah, but if he thought it was darkly funny and annoying enough, he might. You <laughs> right, know what I mean? Right. Like, I, it all fair. depends on understanding that you know being just a hyper contrarian like if you if there was some good joke reason to do it to just piss people off right he absolutely would and you know if if, 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 if like somebody was like you know the kind of person i suspect based on everything that we've read and seen at this point which is a, a decent amount of material that like you know the kind of person who would like essentially in this format like have essentially producers holding a gun to his head and that's the sort of thing he would like like <laughs> right, you need right. to explain it to your audience they don't get it and they are unhappy and then yeah that's what comes out
1: and after two weeks of press you know this movie comes out and immediately he's bombarded with questions of what does this movie mean he, right. I could see him agreeing to it in the just out of desperation of being tired of being asked that question. Right. Even as and he goes home course, and laughs at the people asking him that question. Right, and but, then of
0: course make an explanation that doesn't help. That doesn't
1: help at all. <laughs> it has no explanation. Just deal with it.
0: <laughs> right, What's exactly. on the sunglasses. It just, it's, and, yeah, uh, it's exactly, it's so much in his wheelhouse that like, I believe it. I, I yeah. mean, like, or even if they like showed it at like, I don't know if it showed me. Ma- did it show at any festivals or anything? I don't know offhand. Because I could also see him even adding it in the space between a, f- a festival and a wide release of being like, "Oh, everybody at the festival is like, what does this mean?" Well, I have an answer for them. <laughs> it's not an answer. It did
1: play. Uh, it did play at Con because it got two ro- two awards at Con: uh, Screenwriters right. Award and the International. Federation of Film Critics Award.
0: Right, but we live in a world where I can definitely believe that it could, that a movie could both get an award at Con and then also everybody who watched it at Con asked the director, what does this movie we just gave an award mean?
1: Also, the Bodo Awards, which are the Danish Film Awards, uh, gave this an award for the, the best non-European film, which really feels like kind of a cop-out. I mean, yeah, he was a Mexican <laughs> citizen by that point, but, but still. But also,
0: it seems like you're cheating. <laughs>
1: yeah, kind of cheating there uh did uh did the river also win best non-european film just any <laughs> anything yeah, as long european as it's not, made a, not outside made of europe
0: somewhere else yeah honestly would you find that a surprising thing to learn it, not at all no not no, not at all
1: and i was about to say not in mid-century europe but not even not even in today's europe would i find that no honestly I mean, that keep surprising. in mind it's
0: not europe but keep in mind that, oh shoot, what's the name of that movie? I just forgot it. I just blanked uh, Minari that's what I was thinking of uh is the flip side of that for America oh yeah, which yeah. is where this is a foreign film wait wait what now like, <laughs> right oh, what are you talking about no, it's not, like I mean it's just it's the same thing just operating in in right the, right minari it's being it's not even it's the a same film shot thing. Just in america in for, yeah. with
1: Americans but in Korean. So yeah. So it's anyway. apparently
0: a foreign film.
1: Yeah. We'll see if, uh, <laughs> yeah. What it gets, uh, what it gets, you know, the Oscars have an out because they call it foreign language film. So I know, yeah. but that's,
0: I but... mean, let's be very clear about the level of semantics to that phrase. <laughs> right,
1: Right, 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 right. Of course. Oh, uh, anyway. Uh, this, uh, this movie is fascinatingly weird. Uh, it is oh, yeah. inspired no, I mean, by yeah. it's inspired by disaster films. Uh, in fact Oh it, no, uh, yeah that makes sense. Yeah. The original title working title was the uh, uh, it was The Castaways of Providence Street, I think or something along those lines mm. because it okay. was it was meant to be like a shri- a shipwreck but it just takes place in the living room. Um, after a fancy dinner party, w- um, wonderful. but the same the same sort of things. you know, they can't they can't escape. Yeah. the society falls apart. Uh, everybody t- turns to their baser instincts. They gotta find water, then they gotta find food. Uh, one aspect that did not get into it that Bunel says he regrets later on is that they never turned to cannibalism outright they do attempt a human right. sacrifice which i guess is yeah but
0: here's okay i mean i i admire the sort of what he's doing here yeah um i i i think i think cannibalism would have been probably taking he says he regret i regrets it but like i think he would have almost hurt the points he's trying to make by by extending it out to like Donner party sort of levels of of yeah sort of thing um well, I mean, it, I know. I guess
1: another aspect of it with me, and you've obviously not seen this movie, but uh, when I think about this breaking down the cannibalism, I also think about the third act of Mother and how just completely over the top all of that was. Because uh, Mother also all takes place in one house. Not that they are incapable of leaving, but people just keep showing up and similarly abusing... Uh, abusing... Uh, the welcoming atmosphere, of, right. of uh, you know, common courtesy etiquette, uh, to the point where you know I wouldn't be surprised if Aronofsky was had exterminating angel in mind in some of the stuff that ended up in Mother, but but yeah, it's uh, it lays on the surrealism pretty early, uh, yeah. We get the uh, the maids trying to sneak out. And the same exact scene of everyone arriving plays twice, but the maids react to it playing twice, right? They, you know, right? It is, yeah. it is staged exactly the same. It might even be shot the same. Twice I think it, I think it might just...
0: actually, I think it might be the same. I, I think it might be as, excuse me, a single a single take. It seems like it's on... a single take.
1: It, it's a little too close to not be a single take. Well, and that's uh, also
0: not the first repetition in the movie. Like right. I believe there's already a previous repetition. Like there's multiple. The movie plays out a sort of weird time loop scenario right. multiple times, really tightly packed into that first few scenes. And that is that is probably the most overt
1: one, but Bunnell right. claims there are twenty repetitions like that I, throughout I mean, 20 the Twenty
0: seems high. Like I mean, I, I, I did, did not. I definitely 20, did not notice twenty. But, but I noticed <laughs> at least like five or so. Uh right. which is enough to tell you as the audience like and, and like I think probably what he's going for there is that like if you put enough of those in there, your audience is gonna pick on pick up on some of them. Right. You know right, what I mean? Right. Like like you pack it in there so that like you know, no matter how closely or not closely they're paying attention, eventually somebody's gonna pick up on at least one of them. Yeah. There and are... in that sense, he is being kind of nice to his audience because like you know he actually wants right. the audience to get that this like, is the thing that's happening
1: right he's not being like like particularly with with that most overt one you might think well is this some sort of weird editing mistake but he's got the maids reacting to it so you know right it's happening in in universe right um, right some of the subtler stuff could be something like that you know and some of those 20 are so subtle that I'm sure no one but you now ever noticed them um right
0: like i mean it does make me and i'm sure somebody i'm certain people have already done this but it does make me personally want to go back and like watch that opening bit and be like all right well which you know make make an enumerated list of
1: yeah just to see how many i can get because
0: it it is it's a fascinating thing to think about that he had that many i noticed five or so and it's like well, okay but there's a list here like there's a lot
1: yeah Um. uh interpretations of this film um I think Bunell pretty clearly holds his holds his feelings on his sleeve while he makes movies. Uh you know, he likes to he likes to be overt in a lot of ways. I think a Milky Way in particular, uh, where he's just showing his work that he uh he knows right. he knows so much about church history as an atheist. <laughs> uh Ebert wrote a pretty lengthy uh, interpretation of this as as Francoist um, of the uh, you know the workers of the Spanish Civil War versus the aristocracy, which are were the Francoists, and that it's um, the Francoists have sat down to a dinner of their own creation by the defeat of the workers, and only to find out that that dinner never ends, and they're trapped in their own code sac is his right. uh, is his phrasing uh, there were early audiences where uh, Bunel says uh, they reacted to the bear by saying oh the bear is obviously obviously Soviet the bear it's uh, communism and and Bunel is just laughing at that and
0: <laughs> yeah I mean that seems like that that that's not that's yeah. not it but
1: obviously the fact that it happens again at the church, has some implications from certainly from you point of view of uh the uh, equivocal nature of oppression between organized religion and uh and the bourgeois upper classes right um which i can't you know I say from his point of view, but also from the mainstream of, you know, at
0: least 1,500 years of Christianity. So it's, you know, right. I can't be yeah, dismissive I mean, of that. Um, but. Well, yeah, but I mean, like, that is what, I mean, but, you know, it is, yeah, but we get it.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: so, yeah, it's... uh I mean, yeah, there's, there's a lot of interesting funny... stuff
1: going on. I don't want to I don't want to get bogged down in trying to interpret it either.
0: Well, but right. I mean, that. but that's the thing, right, is that when you're presented with <laughs> hyper allegorical films. Yeah. Much like comedies, as we've discovered, are are hard to reckon with in the sort of way that we do things, because like you can't we, we often talk about different scenes in a movie as we go through. as we we talk about them, but when they're hyper-allegorical, like, well, like, how do you talk about something, like, how do you talk about a dream of a woman being strangled by a disembodied hand floating around a room (laughs) without trying to engage with its meaning? Uh, Because, like, in part, you're sort of leaving, you're sort of leaving part of the movie on the table there and not talking about it. Like, it, it is actually sort of a meta problem for, you know, anything right, right like right you can see that with with even with ebert talking about like this i i don't know if that was that was that in a review or what i believe it was um, his
1: review of the movie Yeah, but
0: like that's not ebert's job generally speaking when he was alive was not to try to dissect the allegorical nature of a film <laughs> except for when oh shit like here it is and i've got to do it apparently like i <laughs> right, i have right. to like you you know what i mean right like like that's that's not a reviewer's job except for when suddenly a filmmaker makes it his job.
1: There is, there is perhaps the aspect of uh, it is Ebert's job to tell you whether or not a movie is good and whether or not you should see it particularly. And therefore, you know, if, if you're talking about a movie that is going to be pretty weird, maybe Ebert's job becomes explain enough of it to get you to (laughs) want to watch it. But that's what, but that is what I mean.
0: Right. Is it like in the sense that like, just like with a, the, the, the sort of tone of what you have to do with it changes when you're not like, you know, all, all films to a certain extent are metaphorical in nature. Of course. But we're usually able to engage with that as a sort of like veneer on the on, <laughs> on this right, activity. Right, right, right. It's like, well, here we, or sometimes we just choose to do it ourselves because we're like, well, shit, we're making this into a Marxist film, if, <laughs> if it, whether it likes it or not. Uh, but like... But now it's like, well, I mean, it's there. Like well, you, you can't not look at it and be like, Well, here it is, it's there. Uh, should we try to take it apart? The problem is is that like you get into you you're getting into like this sort of like closed loop where like he puts so much in there that yeah, there's that interpretation you can read, but then you could also build a bajillion other interpretations off of it. Right. Because with any of these sort of with any sort of like intentional allegory You create this sort of branching pathway of other possible allegorical meanings because, you know, there's enough vagueness in it inherently that, like, anybody could read lots of different things into it. Right. Like, um, you know, what does a lamb mean? Well, right, like, I mean, yeah, there's the straightforward answer that, like, 95% of people would give, but, like, I guarantee you we could find other meanings for a lamb. Right.
1: And the whole the whole uh, the central problem that they cannot leave that room, they cannot leave the house, but also that the uh, the workers, the servants felt compelled to leave uh, beforehand. You know, it's there are certainly instances of that same sort of mass hysteria, particularly through the middle of the century uh, of, uh, you know, we could we could talk about uh, nuclear fears. And and Cold War, you know, uh, (coughs) red baiting and and things like that that we could we could get into as as that same sort of avoidance. You know, but I don't think he's interested in doing anything like that either. Right. Right. I think Bunnell really just thought it would be fun to make a shipwreck movie that takes place in a living room. And right. then built on that idea, in ways that he thought would be fun, and that's really what I get right. from you I now, mean, and right?
0: It, and yeah, I mean, I I would generally agree with that submit, but I would add in that like, who's my favorite foil to jam into any film about people doing <laughs> like dumbass <laughs> shit? Right, right. The aristocracy,
1: the aristocracy, done and, and done. the church. Movie written. And we're yeah, we got it. You know, <laughs> like,
0: like. Sign me up. Here we go. Yeah. Like, I mean, and of hey, course and he's not wrong. Yeah. Like, you know, good choices you know, all around. Laughing
1: outright at the people who say, oh, the bear must be communism is, of course, you know, but, what is the bear in this movie? He's threatening, sure, but he doesn't actually do anything and then just walks away. That's not it. You know, laughs at that because that's not communism, to you know so, Right, like, right. You know. But...
0: Well, you know. and also, I mean it's also very clearly a man in a bear suit, like very painfully, obviously throughout (laughs) the movie. Right. Uh, So there's that whole extra level of like, what, what does a man in a bear suit represent? Like, good question. Do not know the answer to it.
1: And the, uh, you know, the lambs sort of, they, they're only there, the lambs and the bear are only there as some joke that we never even get to see a punchline to. Right. Because the, the, the uh, mistress of the house comes in and says, "Oh, they're for the after dinner entertainment." And then,
0: right? Yeah, I, nothing. I, I, I am. A, I do have to say, that like, in in terms of, you can see a a a line as Brunel gets more. I mean, I I want to say in that, but again, my my memory of the films is is patchy at best. But I feel like there's a through line of him getting more. Just like kind of wild and crazy a little bit. To a certain well, I think extent. that's like I think that's fair. Like this one is the is like has such explicit jokes, like actual like there's an actual joke there too because like the the waiter trips and falls, and and makes that mess, and some of them say it's a joke and some of them imply that it's not a joke, right? Like the 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 other yeah. members of the aristocracy that are there don't know, some of them take it as a joke, some of them don't, Um, and we as the audience don't know, because it looks like a real fall, the guy falls, we don't know, and the only time we find out is a couple minutes later, when the joke pays off, when she goes into the kitchen, she's like, Nick's nicks the bear in the lambs, so-and-so's not into the, doesn't (laughs) like Not into humor, yeah. And it's like, that's a really fucking good joke. It really is. Like, it is extremely well-crafted. I can't describe it any other way. It is it is excellent joke writing. Absolutely like it just is. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Uh yeah. And obviously, you know, the nature of Discreet Charm and, and that that set uh are different. Viridiana gets real crazy in its uh in its orgy scenes. <laughs> you know? Yeah, see
0: like I can like my but. memories of Viridiana are just I yeah. do remember, I don't know. It's like, I'm never, I'm going to have to rewatch that movie at some point to just like repiece my memories back together. Basically. One
1: act of Viridiana is, uh, Viridiana had, you know, cause the whole movie, uh, is an attack on personal charity and, and right. That part I remember insistence on personal charity. So Viridiana in her, in her personal charitable attitude has invited a bunch of homeless people into the house and they I basically that destroy setup. the house. Yeah. Right. They basically right. destroy the house. Um, So that's the whole thing, but like they're you know it's just they do this fake Last Supper thing where you know the camera freezes and uh, (laughs) there's a beautiful aspect of that (laughs) that I didn't notice when we watched Veridiana, but someone brings it up in in the last script is that uh, I think it was in the last script. It might have been it might have been in the bonus features for uh, next week's movie too, Um, but somebody says uh, for that for the Last Supper scene in Veridiana. Uh, We didn't have 13 people. So we just had uh, like the set dresser stand in. Oh my God. And then, and then just had them disappear for the rest of the thing. (laughs) Like they were only there for that, for that scene, but no one, no one noticed that there weren't enough people. (laughs)
0: Like
1: I didn't notice there weren't enough people. (laughs) I didn't
0: notice either. That's yeah. Hey, you know, nobody, it works. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, Who's counting,
1: right? (laughs) But yeah, just dress them up, dress them up as hobos. Let them go. Um, Another interesting best back- background on this. Uh, Buñuel, like I said, you know, Buñuel wasn't going to tell the actors what exactly was going on because maybe he didn't, you know, have the uh, <laughs> have the thought process to be able to tell what exactly was going on because right, it's right. him having fun. Um, but like you know, they shoot and they'd go, they'd go home. For the night, and they'd wash up, and they'd come back, and they never look disheveled enough uh, from day to day, as they're supposed to be getting more and more disheveled over the course of the film. Uh, so to make them look really grimy, uh, he spread honey on their skin and had them Uh-oh. get dirty with honey on their skin. And, like, that's that's enforced method of acting for you. Cause
0: yeah, ooh, that seems... <laughs> yeah, you would... <laughs> You would feel pretty nasty, <laughs> yeah, pretty quick. Ugh. Yeah, Ugh, I can't especially, even like that. Sounds so especially uncomfortable. with that bear
1: wandering around the set. You know, fear. Oh, yeah, that, I mean,
0: he's no he. You know, him. we all know how much he loves honey. <laughs> he clearly <Dave>. loves honey. <laughs> Dave the bear stealing baskets. Well, I baskets. mean, Dave the dude in a bear suit. Yeah, <laughs> he's a huge fan of honey. I yeah. mean, there is also a real bear, but like, yes. I'm not convinced how long there's a real bear. I think there's only a real bear for like the one scene.
1: Uh, the scene in the kitchen certainly, and I think I think he's a real bear for a little
0: bit when he I chases so the yeah. when he chases yeah. the lambs into the room. Um it, he I'm I'm sure he I'm pretty sure he is because you can tell very clearly when it does switch over to a bodysuit for the most part because it's uh, like 'cause the walk becomes wrong because the right. like human beings can't walk like that. Yes. And so it's like suddenly the butt's super high up in the air, it's like, Well, this is not a bear. Uh, <laughs> but you know, it's still yeah.
1: Uh, as far as a movie about the the sort of breakdown of society, like the, uh, you know, it's it's nice to see it not being teenage boys who are stand in for all of society, instead of you know, it's pretty blatantly just the the aristocracy also breaks down. So
0: well, you know. uh, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, but that's the I, like. This is always a. Unfortunately, this is a kind of movie that I – this is in a genre I very much dislike. Uh, we don't need to get into that too deeply, but, like, it doesn't take a lot of knowing me to understand why I dislike these. Like, ah, yes, society is only, only moments away from collapse because right. all human beings are savages that will just tear each other apart at the first chance they get. Um, like, you know, whatever. We don't need to get into – what evidence Let's, we have or do not I, have for that behavior. But I think
1: like. I think that, that uh that metaphor uh and that uh psychological uh you know even even drawing from you know our most famous example Lord of the Flies, it is a bunch of upper class white boys
0: who Right, it I mean there it is it, a really it is a really fascinating thing that in many ways, that genre, even when it's done seriously, it it sort of tells on itself right where it's like, ah, yes, we we, the upper class are moments away from murdering each other, right. Uh, because, I mean,
1: because personal greed and lust for power becomes too much uh, for a social contract to form or be maintained uh, within. <laughs> Within the upper classes, and that's true in this movie, and that's true in *Lord of the Flies*, whereas the lower class, even in this movie, uh, you know, are are seemingly more apt to uh, create a more communal lifestyle when push comes to shove. Right,
0: right? and and it is fascinating. Like it, this movie is really. This movie does interesting things with that concept that I will give it credit for, that I will never give Lord of the Flies (laughs) credit for, because fuck that book. Um, But, like, it does interesting things, right, because the doctor, who represents sort of reason and order and logic, is actually generally able to maintain control throughout the story.
1: Yeah, but but only
0: because he's controlling a flow of drugs. So. This, well, but, like, how well is he controlling the flow of drugs? Because apparently any old schmuck can get up and steal them. <laughs> That's fair. Like, he, this is true. I mean, you could get into all sort of mer- m- metaphorical representations in and of it, in, in there, but, like, do drugs represent, like, logic and reason? Like, the no, ability to create things that fuck drugs. your brain up? Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> I know, but, like, I mean... Yeah my my point is he's the controlling a, the out. the distribution of drugs but he's exclusively giving those drugs to a single person right. who is the the one that most likely the the given other types of films in this genre would be the person that they would most quickly one of the people they would most quickly turn on is the person who's already dying, of dying cancer, right, basically, right like right. like this person's a drain on our resources kind of thing right and that's not how it unfolds so i'll give you know credit for like not taking it to exactly the obvious places right, per se. right
1: and you know when they ultimately turn on someone in particular they turn on the host who they blame as you know somehow the the supernatural uh, natural impetus for for what is happening to them
0: but then, like but, strangely but, enough they do appear to be right
1: Yeah. Well, there is there is also the aspect that our hosts are in a separate room like they're they're you know, they're they're curtained off
0: from. Well, they get curtained off at the the end of the movie because it's like the movie. The one thing that the movie does sort of it doesn't suffer from, but it does do is it it has an uh, to keep us in the mood for the film to keep us on track with the way it's like keep us engaged with the way the thinking of it works we have no concept of how much time takes place at all right 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 right, right. but at some point clearly things got very threatening for the hosts so they cordoned themselves off and essentially have like created a separate environment within that big room right the stage right right, is where they're hidden um but what's fascinating about that is (laughs) we to get into religious allegories when when our host here decides to finally give up and sacrifice himself uh to to the sort of like the the society in the hopes that that will free them from their torment uh suddenly like it all starts working and like <laughs> like within minutes like it's over it's uh you know that uh, that's a choice right well, there <laughs> but he doesn't actually do it no which, he doesn't which uh, no
1: i think it is actually maybe interesting that it is perhaps the first selfless act of any of them in there.
0: Right. Well, no, I, I agree. I think, I think that like, yeah. you know, you know, you know, kind of gets into the commentary on like the idea that any of them would actually just do something for other people. Right. That, that right. selflessness. Um, but it's also fascinating that the selfless act that, that doesn't even have to take place. It's almost just the surrender to it that, that, that gets right. it to happen and then that selfless act would be allowing himself to be murdered right right or right. i guess and killing himself not actually and, being murdered yeah. but killing himself
1: and obviously the 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 jesus stuff the messianic overtones of that are are there and and right i mean they have hard to be to work it's Bunel, around. like so, it has right. to be. <laughs> you know <laughs> right it's Bunel. um and then the fact that you know from <laughs> i like the idea of of Bunel's religion i have always i really really legitimately loved the milky way uh i know it was way too much for you <laughs> in so yeah. many ways yeah. but but um and understandably so i mean it was too much for me intellectually <laughs> most of the time but
0: uh, right i mean but like i mean yeah i mean there's the we, we don't need to re- <laughs> relitigate the milky way but like as much as I like reading like religious textbooks <laughs> rendered on film, I like right. I'm good. Right. I don't but, need to go uh, to seminary. Thank you very much.
1: But it is it is interesting um, that he presents his Messiah as uh, as being willing to do it, then not having to do it, and then maybe that triggers. Everything happening, but also maybe it doesn't, and maybe all of this is arbitrary anyway, and mass hysteria and what ultimately you know what the film blames or the character's blame is that the one the one woman notices that everyone's sitting in the same position that they had been that night, so they recreate right. they recreate the situation they they bonk themselves on the head a second time with the bowling ball and it or the, it or cures the them, coconut, yeah and but it yeah. Cures what... them.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh-huh. but that's the interesting thing, right? Is that like because, you know, whether Benioff's doing this, on, I do believe Benioff's doing this on purpose. But of course, he, is. You, you could argue that he's not. That like you can play with ca- like the concept of causality by stacking all these things up. You can kind of confuse the audience about like, well, I mean, is A related to B or not? They did follow after each other almost immediately, but we have no evidence that A and B are at all connected. Right? right? Like, um. Because the other thing that is fa- – one of the things that I like the most about his choices that he made is, like, when they finally reset, by the time they're even resetting, they also all look like they did at the beginning of the movie. Right. They're all cleaned and up. And so does the house. Right. Everything's back – and so then you get into this, like, concept – you know, know asks you to think about – like, definitely is asking you to think about, like, like their – they are they just trapped in themselves right like quite right. literally as the as the like bourgeoisie are they just in like are they and just I, internally trapped inside of themselves i times, didn't read, I didn't
1: read i didn't read all of uh ebert's interpretation of this so i'm i I'm, I'm sorry if i'm cribbing off of him in saying this but it is also interesting that the the workers are showing back Up for work
0: at the end of that sequence,
1: too. And sort of everything's gone to normal. Like, they had this big mess-up, like a civil war, and then they finally made it through. Franco's dead, and things can finally get back to, to how they were. Not that how they were is good. Uh, no right can think of other things that we've made it through recently as a
0: society or a country. Well, um, and I don't think Bunnell would argue that they are good. They're just normal, right? right? Like, it's just, right. well, we're back to the way it was.
1: Right, right. And Bunnell was never a super fan of the way it was. You don't right. fight in a civil war when you're a super fan of the way it was, right? Right. Uh, I think it's also interesting in the final sequence at the church that... Uh, while they are attending that church service, they aren't visible afterward, right? Yeah, sort I mean of they disappear do... before the well, freeze. The the church stuckness happens,
0: right? And and you do. I mean, there's. I mean, again, like you could build a bajillion interpretations off of this. It's so hard to even like want to try. Right, don't really want to try, but like you know. Are they, have they disappeared or just choosing not to show them? Right, the, the, but like, because you're you know, but also like, I the thing the the part that I enjoy about the church thing, the sort of thing that gets you the most sort of deeply into fun speculation is like the dry like the riot that happens afterwards and the and the driving of the lambs essentially seemingly right. by gunshot into into, into the church. The church.
1: Is, yeah, yeah. I mean, again, it's. You know, his feelings on on organized Christianity are are very clear. clear. Well, that's what
0: I'm saying is, is that in that way, what's really fascinating to me is that in much of the film, he chooses allegory that is purposely sort of vague, right? That you could like you could choose to read in different ways, like at least the specifics of. Right. Like, I mean, you get the general allegory of, you know, fuck these, you know, fuck these aristocrats. They suck. Like. Here they are going to. He mostly go this uses thing.
1: metaphor that's vague enough that it might not even be metaphor, that it might just be right. him being. Like
0: playing around, yeah.
1: Non sequitur, right.
0: And then sometimes he does things like have soldiers drive <laughs> lambs into churches where people are trapped and we know they're going to be slaughtered. Sometimes, Bunel right. you know, right. just really, really wants to be clear.
1: That one's maybe a little on the nose, you know?
0: Right, <laughs> so. exactly. But like, and it does seem to me. And this is just me being, at least so, in some of these earlier films, Biennale's much more willing to be on the nose about religion than he is about his, about, like, right. sort of, like, socioeconomic structure. Like, he'll definitely take the aristocrats to task and all that stuff, but, boy, he really wants you to, like, he doesn't want the things about religion to be even be able to be misinterpreted. <laughs> like, I don't know. That seems to, like, his slightly different modes of operation there. Uh obviously as we get further along and we get into things like discrete charm and things like that. Well now I mean he's essentially doing the same sorts of things with the, the uh bourgeoisie as well, where they're just fucking absolutely obviously uh taking them to task, right? Like I don't I don't know. that's just an impression I get. I can't back that up per se. Uh, I could be very wrong. But again, it does seem that like his main axe to grind is against religion. And the bourgeoisie sort of falls into a secondary role there of like well these guys suck too so I'm gonna take pot shots at them as well but really it's it's the religion that we gotta hammer on here right there is
1: there is one other bunel religious film that we won't uh, we won't end up watching right. I, we might have missed it as a bonus feature on a different Bunel movie honestly it seems okay. like because Criterion does occasionally you know do that sort of thing put a full movie in the in the bonus features <laughs> right yeah uh but it's called nazarin and it is uh yeah
0: i they keep talking about it in, yeah in in the documentary and it's like mm, this seems like something we might want to watch but
1: right right it's uh you know it's described as a satirical drama um apparently uh apparently tarkov tarkovsky really loved it
0: too <laughs> I mean uh, just like seeing what we saw from the um from the documentaries and stuff, it does seem to have a lot in common with uh, the movie we're gonna watch next week. Um
1: Yeah, yeah, Simon
0: of the Desert Simon of you the know, Desert. You know, yeah, it does seem to have a lot in
1: Nazarin, common. Simon, and the Milky Way. Uh and uh, and certainly to a lesser extent Viridiana. Um but but Nazarene seems to be and Simon certainly and the Milky Way certainly are much more overt critiques of right. Christianity um, but yeah Nazarene I mean just the the title being Nazarene is you know Jesus is referred to as the Nazarene and he is a right. a Nazarene in ideology um, from from Nazareth rather um, so you know it's obviously an overt reference there. Uh, not having seen the film or or know much about it, I won't speculate on on what. I don't think it's. I don't. While it is a movie called Nazarene, I don't think it is a Jesus movie, particularly. No, I but. don't
0: think so. But like that—that's kind of what I mean—is that like just the clips that they show in the documentary seem to point to a the Simon of the Desert sort of thing, where it's like, well, gesturing at right at that kind of the, that sort of philosophy and that sort of thing without actually like being like, this is a movie about this guy. Um, so, right. Um.
1: Absolutely. Um, so, you know, I, I would legitimately be interested in watching that. I might try. We, we
0: might, we might want to see like, it, uh, I can see a bonus list where we maybe we just like chuck on some brunelles. We're just never going to encounter and be like, all right, we'll watch one of these. Yeah. Well, um, we
1: already, we already were pretty disappointed with, uh, His adaptation of uh, Robinson Crusoe. Okay, so
0: but that's what I'm saying is we need to be very careful. We need to we and I. This may not even be possible because we may just not. There just may not be enough. Robinson Crusoe, from everything I see from the documentaries, fits into a very specific time period where he had very little creative control over what was happening. uh, Right. Right. While in Mexico, like you know, Robinson Crusoe is not a Mexican production. Uh, It is a. through hollywood but it's right in that time period as far as i remember what i what we saw there in the documentary so it's like you just i think we wouldn't want to pick from a very specific time block
1: right where we would just be watching
0: essentially like basic basic like rote production movies that, that he was forced up, to make
1: that brings up a uh an interesting aspect of you know, his career too um where you know he just keeps getting fired
0: from things, yeah,
1: <laughs> um, yeah, because you know he was hired. I can't by... imagine
0: the person described in that Charlie Chaplin ended up getting <laughs> right. fired from stuff.
1: Well, he's hired. He's hired by Hollywood uh, to, uh, you know, dub films for Spanish release, and right. then you know while that job's happening, uh, FDR starts his goodwill ambassadorship stuff with South America, and he's like, hey, why don't we just. Support the South American film industry instead of, uh, instead of just exporting our our own dubbed films. Why don't we pour money into it? And and so the the film industry, you know, Hollywood, starts doing that, which means Bunell does doesn't have any movies to overdub anymore, and it's uh, right. is out of work, which is his impetus for moving to uh, Mexico. You know, because he he has no reason to stay in L. A. Uh, but yeah. I I don't know. There's that that brings me back around to the, the interesting aspect of Buniel as uh as someone who never really belongs where he ends up and a refugee right. who who never belongs in the places he ends up but he can't go home, right? Because right. his country is not his country. Uh he is you know, like all refugees. Uh you know, he is he is fleeing a violence that uh makes his country no longer his own um right yeah i oh, don't know to get back to the movie i do think it's uh i laughed a little when we get that little the first scene of the movie is a uh, a zoom in on the street name as providence street right and it's just <laughs> okay sure you now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it—that's—that's it, a—I I don't know. Beale is a really is a real hard character to get a lock on in many ways. Yeah, because you're like, he is perfectly willing to be just a just way too on the nose, right? And then also, like, put a bunch of stuff in that you're like, well, I mean, I think I know what this means. Like, he's yeah. just really a. And It's a very it, singular sort of director. It is way. interesting
1: in this movie in particular that it's it's sandwiched by maybe the two most on-the-nose bits.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Which are also maybe the two most overtly religious bits. You know, we can talk about the human sacrifice acts and we get um, what I assume to be a fake Kabbalah ceremony, but I don't know enough about Kabbalah actually to say if it's real or fake. Um, it would surprise me if it were real. Yeah. Uh, But
0: yeah, I mean, I don't don't see Brunel as the kind of person who's going to go do the research on that to make sure that's real. (laughs) Like that just seems like, ah, this is a bit I thought would be pretty like fun to have in here. And we'll call it Kabbalah
1: Um, because that's something people might know the name of. Right.
0: We'll know the name of it, but probably have no idea what what it involves either. And it
1: is is certainly more likely that an aristocrat, (laughs) an aristocrat uh, would be a practitioner of Kabbalah uh, than say voodoo or something that right, might be yeah. more,
0: I don't want right, to say exactly more, more
1: apt because the, the chicken stuff is probably stereotypically voodoo as well. But,
0: uh, yeah, I yeah. mean, I think he was trying to basically hit something that sounds kind of posh to like fit right. with the the vibe. Like
1: it's interesting that it was kind of posh in, uh, in 1962 Mexico in the same way that it was kind of posh in, 2005 two thousand five America. Yeah, <laughs> like, I was
0: thinking the same thing when 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 she's like when she said it, I was like, "Is this Madonna? Like, what's right. happening here right now?" And then Madonna um, getting into it
1: seems like a Bunell joke too. So yeah, like, it does, right? <laughs> right? It
0: really does. Like, well, and that's, <laughs> I guess, to a certain extent, one of the one of the really stranger aspects of Buñuel you know, humor in that way is that like. Any individual component of, you know, like this, this absurdist, like Rob, any individual component could just be a headline that appeared in the news at some point. (laughs)
1: Right. Right.
0: Like the fact that they're all jammed together makes the thing seem outrageous. And obviously there's like mystical elements to it and stuff like that. Like they can't leave the room or anything like that. But like, um, like any individual element just could be a thing, right? Like and that and that's its own sort of special like talent that he has of like these are all absurd but like if you read a newspaper and and not just now but like at the time he was r- making film like because like you know the world is n- neither stranger nor less strange now than it was then <laughs> right, uh, right in actuality like uh like dinner party doesn't notice lambs and bear wandering free during middle of dinner like could be a thing that you just read in the newspaper and you're like, yeah, okay, well, that's that's the rich for you. Right. I don't know, like, right. you know what I mean? Like, it, and, and and there's a certain power to that because you can, what he creates in that environment is a thing that, like, the whole audience walks out and they that was ridiculous. And then if they were ever to spend any amount of time talking about it and trying to pick it apart, they will then realize that every single component of it wasn't really that ridiculous. Like, it is, but it's not like beyond the pale of things that could just happen. That could be, again, you read in the newspaper about, you know, one day you wake up and somebody, like, oh, yeah, like this dinner party at this rich person's house, a person died and they just shoved him in the closet. Okay. Yeah. I, of course. Yeah. Like, of course. Um, uh, like, yeah.
1: One last, uh, perhaps hilarious impetus for this film is that is also just Bunell's introverted fear of going to a party and not being able to leave. Yeah.
0: Uh, no, I get that too. Yeah. He's not wrong. Uh, and
1: I think that's funny. I think that's very fun. Uh, and I like I that it that, pairs I up with that.
0: a fear of being, of going to church and also not being able to leave. Right. Right. There's a real, there's a real, there's a real symmetry there. Uh, yeah. There, it yet, is, there you know. is about perfect.
1: The stuff where you're, where you're, when you're about to leave, you think, oh, I guess I'll go. It won't be too bad if I go. And then if you find out you're not, you can't, you can't get out. Yeah. Um, yeah. I get it. I get it. I, I, like
0: I, it. I, there are a couple things that I really do, like uh, just like little things that I liked that I wanted to talk about. Yeah. Um, I'm fascinated by the head butler being lumped in to as a sort of class trainer. <laughs> Yeah, with with these guys, like that he doesn't really belong, but somewhere in his like it's a very much a commentary on how he sees himself, right? Like, right, he considers himself, and we don't know that, like you don't directly say it, but he considers himself above the other help, and 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 by that nature is a class trader who's trapped in there too, right? Like he has to burn with them, not away from, right? You know what I mean? Like he doesn't get to leave, and Um, is a fascinating thing.
1: In the class hierarchy of an upstairs downstairs thing, uh, he is. I mean, he is the, right. But then, but the but, major but, domo, but, he is the the head of the lower class,
0: right? Right. But what's fascinating about it is, is that like you know does play with that a lot, which is like he isn't though. Like you know, he is. He considers himself that way, and he is. Yeah. He is the he is the head. He is the head normal person, who's thusly trapped because he is a class traitor right? but at the same time he is certainly not one of them and they oh. treat him like garbage basically right. throughout he the is entire still a time he's trapped in there. As yeah. soon as he, he gets into still the room he is
1: them. still a servant. Yeah. He is still
0: lower yeah. to them Yeah, He is absolutely. still serving them He is still like they're constantly demanding things from him as though he could produce them right. magically Right. It's very fascinating It's like why can't you just give us more food and it's like motherfucker I'm in here with you Right. But you're, but yes, but you're not. Now, like, obviously,
1: his his first entering into that room is sort of how the characters d- discover that no one can leave the
0: room. But, right, but it's a nice plot point. It works well too. Yeah. But I mean, you know, it's not strictly speaking necessary. It it just does a really good job of pointing that out, right? Right. Um, I
1: also I also really love that uh, while they can't leave the room, they can throw garbage out of the room. So the sort yeah. of they are. They are living in their own little bubble, and polluting the rest of the house throughout yeah. the entire yeah. thing yeah. Is very, is very sure. It's very very interesting. Great, yeah. yeah, yeah. There's a lot of, uh, I mean, there's a lot of really subtle stuff. I just don't taking it all together. I don't even want to begin to speculate about. No, what I you don't know, want to either because it's impossible. <laughs> be I saying. just
0: there are certain little bits that I really I like the way it dealt with the the head the head the butler the the major domo like I like that. Oh, there was another one that, I, that like really struck me. Oh, I really do like the way, it, not the way exactly it ends, but the way it deals with the church thing. The way everybody's trying to leave but also not leave the church is just deeply fascinating to me because the dynamic's quite different than the, 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 the party, right? The party, people keep coming up with excuses as they approach and they, they leave, and, and it all fits into the balance of the way a party works, right? Right. It feels like a party. Oh, I should um, have
1: coffee before I go, yeah,
0: right right uh, I'll have another cigarette that sort of stuff, right it all feels very normal and then it because the dynamic of a of a church is different it it is still that dynamic, but it's very fascinating like the priests have it, but then all the people at the door are essentially tr- like jostling each other for exit but can't exit, and so the result is like it it's a it is a it produces the same dynamic but it's just a very fun yeah. different one because well, like, also, it's like uh, too many people trying to fit through a door at the same time the result yeah. is nobody gets to leave yeah
1: but then we also get a you know dialogue from them that's all like the, the no no i insist you go first no 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 right no you. exactly no, no, yeah no. well yeah.
0: and 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 it's and you know we're now talking about the sort of like these weird dumb parts of polite society and that like right. church and church and a, a dinner party have very different ones but they function yeah. identically in in, in, yeah. in, in actual result right, right? right. It's a very
1: interesting a very base but true reading of this film is also just that you know it's like hey social etiquette's dumb and it traps is a you into doing is, is a it's prison a, right. in <laughs> is a prison you're trapped in it's a prison you're trapped in right yeah. right <laughs> exactly uh, well I I think we've talked this one out I uh, sort of chomping at the bit to talk about Simon of the Desert too which, yeah me uh, too this, uh, you know, occasionally it is much more rare now for Lost in Criterion to record two episodes back to back. And uh, and we always end up uh, always end up anticipating the next one whenever we do it now. Uh, so uh, while you won't get to listen to it for another week, we're going to be talking about it. You know, assuming you're listening to these as they come out, I guess if you're if you're listening to this in the year 2025, you can go right into it. And just like we did. And congratulations on being able to experience the world in a similar manner to to the way we are experiencing it. As the we way we it.
0: experience it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and also, fine. like, I hope you're enjoying your life in, I guess, the clouds, like Jetson style I don't know.
1: <laughs> I assume I by assume 2025 we'll all be living out. in yeah. the skies. Uh, certainly.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, this week we've been
1: talking about uh, Louis Buñuel's 1962 film, Made in Mexico, The Exterminating Angel. Uh, starring Sylvia Pinal, we will see Sylvia again next week for another Louis Bunel film, also produced by her husband Gustavo. Autriste, Simon of the Desert, which came out in '65, and I believe is the final thing, uh, the final thing that Buñuel made in Mexico proper before uh, before returning to Europe uh, for uh, all of the all of the much more
0: weird. I don't know yeah. about much more weird. but I, Yeah, it's, it's yeah. hard to say exactly that, but certainly uh, less story-driven. Yes, certainly less story-driven
1: things that we, uh, we have experienced of, you know, in the past. Uh, but yeah, next week, Simon in the Desert. We look forward to that. Thank you so much for listening to Lost in Criterion. I am, as always, the Adam Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick, Otari Dorgan, and we'll see you next time. <laughs> I'm your co-host Adam Glass. You can find me on Twitter at TheAdamGlass. My partner is John Patrick O'Hitari-Dorgan, and you can find him at JPatrickDorgan. Check out more of the show at LostInCriterion.com, or hey, give us a review on iTunes. It's nice. If you really like what you hear, consider supporting us at Patreon.com slash LostInCriterion. Hey, our theme music is by Jonathan Hape. Check him out at JonathanPape.com. And thanks for listening. We appreciate it.